All right, welcome back. It's good to have you with us. And uh, I just want to mention one or two things. First of all, um, just in, in terms of uh, being in prayer, being in prayer for our nation, being in prayer for our government, being prayer, in prayer for all of us as we navigate a different difficult time with uh, lots of issues. The other thing um, I want to also mention is that uh, we're doing a fundraiser for CareNet as they, as they work with the unborn. And uh, they have given us the baby bottles. We did this last year. And, of course, now it makes it a little more different. But for our CNU students who are at, at home watching, uh, we want to remind you of our plan. And that is that you go to wherever your dad or your mom empties the change out of their pockets or their purse. And you steal that and bring it back with you when you come back to school. And then we'll give it to CareNet. You know, you know the money. I'm t- you know the money. It's like for your birthday present or it's for vacation, stuff like that. Grab that. Bring it here. We'll, uh, we'll give it to CareNet and put it to good use. So for everyone else, if you'd like to, you can designate money, you can write a check, you can give in cash, you can give a, a change. Uh, we have bottles here if you want them. Otherwise, we can just hand them whatever you give us, and we certainly would appreciate that. Um, this is a difficult time for them, and fundraising is very difficult for everyone who is a nonprofit. And uh, so any way we can help, we'd like to be a part of that. Last week, we talked about going from being a fan to a disciple, and today I wanna, we're going to go back into the book of John now. We're going to continue our series on John. We're at the end of John chapter 1, but we are going to be talking about what we talked about last week just in more detail, and uh, we're going to be looking at it specifically from this passage where uh, John talks to us, teaches us about what Jesus did in calling disciples and what that means for us. So first, we're going to look at Jesus calling his disciples, and then we're going to look at Jesus calling us. So we're going to investigate the biblical record and then apply it to our lives and uh, begin to see what he's trying to teach us. So today, we're going to talk about the call to discipleship. And the first thing I want you to see is Jesus calling his disciples. Now, this is going to be the whole passage because it's all uh, a, a series of calls that are being made directly from Jesus or through people who he has called. And so we're going to start with uh, verses 35 to 30, uh, 39. It says, The next day, uh, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by. Now, this is John the Baptist, just so you know which John we're talking about. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. And this, this word look means you, 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 look, you look with intent. You look with meaning. You understand what you're looking at. All right? Behold, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say that, they followed Jesus. They looked with meaning, and they said, we're going to follow him. Verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So we begin this passage. We see John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is uh, pointing out Jesus, saying, Behold the Lamb of God. He says to them as Jesus is passing by, Look, it's the Lamb of God. Now, this is what John, we talked about this, this is what John was trained to do. John was a priest. He had been trained, part of priest training is being trained to discern which lambs can be used for sacrifice and which lambs are disqualified from sacrifice at the temple. 
That's part of the training that priests receive. So John received that training, and now he's applying it to Jesus. He's saying, here is the Lamb of God. This Lamb is worthy of sacrifice. When he says there's the Lamb, as a priest saying there's the Lamb, he's talking about sacrifice. They understand that. Everyone around him would understand that. And so he's saying, here's God's sacrifice. Now, John probably didn't understand the depths of what he is saying. But again, we see this is classic with John the Baptist. He is turning attention away from himself and towards Jesus and who Jesus is to the point that he starts losing disciples, and he's good with that. There's a great website uh, that kind of brings out that idea of pointing away from myself. It's called I Am Second, and it is just stories of people who have decided to follow Jesus fully and put Jesus first in their life. And so in verses 38 and 39 now, we see what happens with those disciples that leave Jesus. Um, They start following him. And Jesus turns, you know, this would probably make a great movie, turns and realizes, these guys have been following me all around. What do you want? What do you want? Now, when you think about that, these are the first words of Jesus in the book of John. What great words to put first. What great starting words. What do you want? Another translation is, what are you seeking? What a great question to ask someone. What a great question for us to deal with in our lives. What do you want? Think about that. What do you want? What are you seeking? It's meaning, maybe purpose, truth. This is why we're studying this book, because the rest of the book answers this question. What do you want? What are you seeking? And and so they say say to him, they say, uh, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, are they asking for his address? Are they asking for like, you know, what's your zip code? No, that's not what they're saying. This This would be a typical thing. This is a polite way of them saying, we'd really like to talk to you, but we don't want to bother you. So could we stop by in a little while and have coffee together and talk? It's a way of saying, we want to spend some time with you. That's what they're saying there. And Jesus understands their polite request. And he says, he gives them an invitation. He says, come, he replied, and you will see. Now, come and you will see is, and here we go. This is grammar is important. This is called a conditional imperative. Now, what does that mean? It conveys the sense that what Jesus is saying is, if you come and I want you to come, you will see. That's a conditional imperative. If you come, that's the condition. I want you to come. That's the imperative. And he's telling them, if you come and I want you to come, you will see. Now, this is interesting because what they said was, I want to talk to you. And what Jesus is saying, if you come, I want you to come, you will see. You will see. It's this idea of you will begin to understand. You will find out. You will begin to find out the answer to the question. The question is, what do you want? What are you seeking in your life? And if you come, you will see. This invitation is still being issued by Jesus to people all over the world. Jesus is still saying, I want you to come. I want you to come. And maybe, maybe today you're sensing that in your life. Because if you follow, you will see. Things will change. Life will change. You will not be the same person. And so they follow him. 
We see in verse 40 here, Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So he identifies one of them. Uh, most scholars think the other one is John himself, but John never identifies himself. He always uh, kind of alludes to himself obliquely in, in, in Scripture, in, in the book of John. And so he says he's one of the two who heard what John said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing, I love this, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and to tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now, John, if you notice here a couple times, he, he puts kind of in parentheses, this is what's added to help us to understand that he is helping his readers with language issues. When they say, we have found the Messiah, John tells them, which is the Christ, because Messiah is a Semitic word. It's an Aramaic, Hebraic word. And so he gives them the Greek word because he knows that most of his readers can't read, don't understand Aramaic or Hebrew. So he gives them the Greek word, Christ. You will be called Cephas, which, is, which translated as Peter. That's the Greek word of the Aramaic Cephas. So he's helping them understand. This is, uh, this is a part of what John does in his book so that people can understand what is being said here. In the, and, and, and literally, um, it means Christ means the anointed one. Messiah means the anointed one. John translates it for his readers. So Andrew, who is named, immediately goes and finds his brother and tells him, we have found the anointed one. Now, in the Old Testament, to be anointed meant that you were specifically set apart for a particular purpose or a particular office. Kings were anointed. Prophets were anointed to the service of God. Priests were also and the coming one, the Messiah, was understood to be the embodiment and the fulfillment of all aspects of these three roles, prophet, priest, and king. And Andrew tells his brother, we found him. This is the one that, we, that the, the whole Old Testament has been talking about. We found him. Now, Andrew is the less notable brother. Simon Peter is the one who is far more famous. We all know about Simon Peter. Andrew bought, brought Peter to Jesus. It's kind of like he took on what John the Baptist, he learned from him. What did John the Baptist do? John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, not to himself. Andrew goes to his brother and points to Jesus. This is the way the world changes. This is the way our nation will change. People individually pointing other people to Jesus. People individually living lives that are so, that are righteous, that are holy, that are winsome, that are lovely. And when they live these lives, other people see it and go, I want that. That looks attractive to me. That's how our country will change. That's how this world will change. This is how it has been changing for 2,000 years. This is how our church will change. When people decide, I'm going to put others first, I will be second, and they point to Jesus. John the Baptist does it, and then Andrew does it. A few years ago, I was uh, talking to a guy. We were on a trip together that had brought us together, and, um, and so we were talking, and he said, so what, what is this all about, this Christian stuff? What is this all about? And I said, I found someone, I found something that is so important, it changed my life. It redirected the path 
and the focus of my life. Andrew says, I found something. This is going to change our lives. When our kids were little, occasionally we would at the dinner table read maybe a paragraph, a chapter uh, of a book or something like that. One time we read a book about Billy Graham, and what really, what really stuck with me about that, just, I mean, I, obviously Billy Graham was such an incredible person, an incredible Christian, an incredible follower of Jesus. But, but what really stuck with me was in, towards the very beginning, in one of the chapters, they were asking Billy Graham, what has impacted your life the most? And he said, there was this... Uh, there was this man who was a teacher when I was a kid. He was a godly man, and he lived for Christ. And it impacted me more than possibly any person has other than Jesus, that man. And that man, his teacher, died before Billy Graham became famous. He didn't get to see the fruit of his labor. But he impacted a person's life by saying, look at Jesus, not at me. Look at Jesus. I want anything you see in me to reflect him. And it impacted a young boy named Billy Graham. And after that man had passed on, Billy Graham became one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever seen. And that man had a huge part in it. You are bumping into people every day of your life, and you have no clue how it'll affect them. You have no clue how what you say will affect them. You have no clue of how what you say online will affect people. You have no clue how your life can impact people. This is important. Jesus looks at Peter, and it's interesting here. Because the first thing he says is, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, and you will be called Cephas, which is which translated as Peter. Jesus looks at him in which we kind of, you know, you think about it, you kind of expected him to be looking at him because Andrew shows up with his brother. He says, Jesus, this is my brother, right? But, but John's giving us a hint that Jesus looked at him in a very particular way. There's something going on here. And Jesus does something that's, Staggering. He gives him a new name. In the Old Testament, giving someone a new name was a demonstration of, of authority over them and was an, was an expression of this person's life taking a new direction, uh, having a new meaning, a new purpose. That's why people would be given a new name because something had happened and they had changed or were changing. And Cephas is that Aramaic word that he translates to Peter, which means rock. And so the message here from Jesus is very clear to Peter. The direction and the purpose of your life will never be the same. Will never be the same. When you give your life to Christ, things change. Sometimes fast, sometimes slow, but they do change. And Peter, we know from Scripture, is a headstrong, a self-willed individual. And Jesus is kind of laying down the rules to him for following him. Jesus is saying to him, and this is what's loaded into this, Jesus is saying to him, I'm in charge. I have the power to rename you. That means I'm the authority here. This is something you and I are going to work on for quite a while. You know, I can just imagine Jesus as he tells him that, thinking, oh, this is going to be a tough one. And it's funny, but from the point of view of the text, Peter is speechless. Maybe the first time in his life he says nothing, which is pretty unusual for him. 
In verse 43, we see the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. They were fishermen. The town means the town of fishing. It has that in its name. And so Jesus seeks out Philip and he chooses him. He says, follow me. This is something that we understand and we tend to take for granted and we miss right over the immensity of what we're talking about. Here's what we're talking about. God chooses you. He chooses you. Think about that for a minute. God wants you on his team. I want you. That's a pretty powerful statement when you think about it. I want you. All during his ministry, Jesus had people who hung around him, and some for the wrong reason. Um, Jesus didn't want that, and so he often taught in ways that was specifically geared towards making people see the, the, how, how important following him is and the impact that it has and how it will impact their lives. In Luke chapter 9, we see, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I, want, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He says, I want you to understand when you say you want to follow me, what you're getting into. Verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, uh, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is using these illustrations of following him, and they are extreme illustrations. I mean, they're extreme statements. Just like when he talks about the kingdom of God, he uses extreme statements to make the point. What is the point? The point is, do you understand what you're getting into? Do you understand what following me means? Which when you think about this, this is not a great recruiting pitch. He has a whole bunch of people who like hanging around. There's this crowd, and yet at different times in Scripture, we see people in the crowd began to, to, to move away from him because he was teaching. His teaching was too extreme. Well, he did it on purpose because he wanted people to understand this is serious. I don't want people who like me. I want followers. If we look at last week's sermon, Jesus is saying, I don't want fans. I want disciples. I want people who are committed. And Philip goes all in. Jesus told Philip, follow me, and Philip took that seriously. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Verse 46, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. All right. So what, what are we seeing here? This is how Christianity has grown since the power, the power of personal testimony. There are approximately 456 references in the Old Testament about the one who is coming, the anointed one, the prophet, the priest, the king, who will be the savior of Israel. And in Nathaniel, we see someone who looks very much like us. Nathaniel is a skeptic. He's a skeptic, and he's a little bit prejudiced. He's prejudiced against Nazareth. Why? Because Nazareth is this small, insignificant town, and that makes him skeptical about Jesus. It almost kept him from Jesus. 
But why is he skeptical? Why? Because if you're going to talk about somebody who's incredibly important and incredibly powerful, then you would think they would come from Jerusalem. You would think they would come from someplace big, someplace important. And so when he says, we found, we found this, he's from Nazareth. Nathaniel's like, wait a minute. That little backwater place, there's a bunch of hicks that live there. And so what does Philip say? Come and see. Just what we heard earlier. Come and see. And he points to Jesus again. Here we go again, just like John, just like Andrew. Don't look at me. Come look at him. Come and see. You'll find out. We need to see. We need to say come and see more often in our lives to people. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching he said to him, of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, this is interesting. You know, Jesus comments on Nathanael. He says he's an honest speaker. He has no deceit. Nathanael basically says, I'm sorry, have we met? And Jesus says, no, I saw you. Now, Take a moment to think about the fig tree. The fig tree is a very large tree. If it's full grown, it's a very large tree. In, in, in the desert, it was prized. Um, people grew fig trees because of the fruit, but also because they created a, a lot of shade in a very hot climate. In the Old Testament, it's often a symbol of home, of safety. In rabbinic literature, fig trees were said to be prized as the place to meditate on God, to think, to worship to spend time in God's Word and with God. Uh, the, the, the rabbi said the best place to do that is under a fig tree. So we're not exactly sure what's involved in Jesus saying, I saw you under the fig tree, but it conveys that Jesus is able to perceive more than is humanly possible. That's what's conveyed there. It would be like this. Um, this morning I got up. This morning, I spent a little bit of time in prayer. I wanted to do some praying. And uh, oftentimes, I try to pray about this morning and pray about... And, 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 and I'll be honest with you, I think the events of this past week have, have been such a struggle for me and, and something that I've really, really had to grapple with that as I was praying this morning, I kept thinking about things and thinking about stuff and this kind of stuff in my mind would wander and I'd say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. My mind wandered. Help me, Lord, to focus on you. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with this. Sometimes I'm praying and I'm asking God to help me focus on him. And as I'm asking him to help me focus on him, I think, why do I have such a problem focusing? I don't know. I think it's because maybe I'm ADHD. Maybe I'm this. Maybe I remember when I was a kid and all of a sudden I'm asking him to help me focus on him. And that leads me into this weird rabbit trail that takes me somewhere else. And I started praying some more and said, God, help me. And I started, my mind kept wandering. And it was really a struggle. I felt like it was, um, you know, sometimes you feel like when you pray, you've wasted your time because it just was such a struggle. Now, imagine that today, I'm, I'm, I, uh, after, after this service maybe, I go out in the parking lot and some person that I am sure I have never met walks up to me and said, man, you really had a tough time praying this morning. And, that, and, and I didn't think, you know, I knew they hadn't watched, listened to this. I saw what a struggle it was for you when your mind kept wandering. I would be like, what? Who told you that? Wait, it was just me and it was God, and I didn't tell you, so 
rut row. You know, I'd be like, I'd be like the woman at the well. If you remember that she's finally, she looks at Jesus and she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet because you're telling me things I've never heard. I, I know no one else knows. And that's what would happen if someone came up to me and told me something that was personal and intimate like that. I'd be like, how do you know? There's only two people who know, me and God. And I didn't rat you out. I didn't rat me out, you know? And, and, and uh, we're not sure what happened at the fig tree. But we know this. It shocked Nathaniel that Jesus knew. And Jesus says to him, because he, Jesus says to him, you believe? You believe because I told you? Uh, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly, I say unto you, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so, so, so he responds, and I forgot to put it in there. His response is this, Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That's a pretty important verse that I forgot to put in there. <laughs> Nathaniel says, you knew what I did under the, under the fig tree? You're a prophet. At the very least, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus is saying, you think that's something? Wait to see what's coming. Wait, just wait to see what's coming next. And then he makes this incredible claim, and we've talked about this a couple of times, and I feel like sometimes I don't want to just keep uh, saying the same thing over and over. But he says, you will see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that is him talking about what Jacob saw. We did a series on Jacob quite a while ago, but what Jacob, Jacob went, he was running for his life, he laid down, he had this vision, and it, and it wasn't a ladder that he saw, it was a causeway, it was like a huge ramp, and angels were ascending and descending, and God speaks to Jacob, and, and it seems to be that this ramp now has brought heaven and earth together so that God can meet man and man can meet God, and, and how can that happen? How can that happen? And Jesus says here, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the ramp. What is the ramp? What is the bridge? He says, it's the son of man. Jesus says, I'm it. What is he saying to him? He's saying, I'm salvation. I bring heaven down to earth. I allow people to, to commune, to be a part of, to be uh, related to God. I am the center of the universe. I am the salvation that has been foretold. It is my body that people will be ascending and angels descending on. And so here we have in the first part, the last section of chapter 1, we have Jesus calling these disciples one by one, some of them doing the calling for him, but bringing them to him. Come and see, come and see. And now let's talk about something. Jesus also is calling us. If you're not a Christian, he is calling you. He is asking you, confess your sins. Accept him as your savior. To begin to live your life for him. If you're a Christian, he's still calling you. He's calling you to be closer. He's calling you to become more like him. He's calling you to submit. Today in our culture, we're obsessed. We are obsessed with our needs and our desires. We ask ourselves, who am I? Well, the word disciple, it comes from the word discipline. It means we subject our desires for things that are higher, things that are nobler, for things maybe even in the future. Being a disciple of Christ means that Jesus is primary and everything else is secondary. 
Last week we talked about this. Jesus tells us that if we seek life, we will never find it. But if we give up on seeking life in ourselves and we follow him, then we find the very life that we would have sought. If you think that it is more important to find out who you are and how to fulfill your desires than to obey a higher call, then you will never find out who you are and never have your desires fulfilled. I read this, I wrote it down, and then I forgot where I read it, so I can't attribute the, uh, attribute the, um, the quote. But I think it's a powerful thought for us. We can get so caught up in me and what's good for me and what's good for my family and what's good for the people that I care about, that, that Jesus becomes secondary. He becomes a tool almost for us to use to try to make our family better. He's not secondary, and he's not a tool. Figuring out how to be a disciple of Christ is the answer of the most important question of your life. Who am I? And a lot of people, just like the crowd, we see the crowd. They hung around Jesus for the wrong reasons. They hung around Jesus because there was always a lot of people. It was kind of exciting, and there's always stuff happening. Wrong reason, though. A similar reason. They hung around Jesus because of the show, the miracles. They like to see, let's show us the big stuff, explosions. I want big things. I like that stuff. Fourth of July, make it go, make it happen. They like the miracles. And then, but what does that lead to? That leads, I want, I want one of those for me. And it leads to bargaining with God. God, I've done this so much for you. Why don't you give, I'll do this if you do this. Some of the crowd, they're hanging around because it makes them feel better than others. I'm on the inside. I'm on the, I'm, I'm on the cool, I'm in with the good group. We're the ones that know. Oh, you other idiots. Makes them feel better. That's the wrong reason. Some hang around because you're feeling guilty. I'm feeling guilty. And if I can just do a few things for Jesus, it makes me feel better about myself. Makes me know I'm a good person. Maybe sometimes I, I really screw up. So then I hang around with Jesus some more, a little extra, try to make up for it. What am I doing making up for it? I'm, I'm creating a transactionally based relationship. That is not what a disciple of Christ is. Being a disciple, we are told, is to follow. Come, follow me. Come and see. Follow means something. It means you move. It means you change. It means you don't stay the same. To follow, to worship, to give ourselves to something, it is our nature. We are made this way. We were made to worship. We were made to follow. This is when we function best. We were made to worship God. We were made to follow him. We oftentimes, because this is the way we made, we substitute things. We worship our family. We worship a, 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 some other person that we're in a relationship with or we wish we were in a relationship with. We worship them. We can worship so many things, financial things, relationships, family, power, knowledge, our talents, our skills, whatever it is, there's a million things. It could be different for each person, but it becomes the center. It becomes the sun and everything else revolves around it. And then it dominates your thoughts and your order of your day is given to it. It gives you meaning. It gives you a foundation to stand on, at least for a while. But if it's not God, someday it will burn you out. It will eat you alive. 
You can worship a person, but people always fail us. You can worship a family, but family members always fail us. You can worship all these different things. They will fail you. Someday, they will fail you. And so some, in reaction to that, they go to the other extreme. Nothing is worth my allegiance. I just want to serve me. And people like that often become aimless in life and have nothing to live for, floating along with no gravity. Many become cynics, which is very liberating at first, and then it's just boring. In the spiritual realm, we need a center. We need gravity. We need the thing that gives meaning, that develops us and grows us without exhausting us. And it is Jesus. That's why he calls us. He made us for this. He made us to worship. He made us to follow. He says, come and see. That's the most, that's the kindest, best thing that Jesus could ever say to us. Come and see. Why? Because it's what we were made for, and he knows it. He has our best at heart when he says, become my disciple. So becoming a disciple is following, and that involves obedience. But you know what? Relating to any person involves uh, surrendering of the will to some degree. If you're serious about a relationship of any kind, it requires you to put aside your wants or maybe your desires to some degree to enable you to relate to that person. If you don't, if you are refusing to surrender your wants or your desires and trying to have a relationship with another person, that person, after a bit, will feel used and will exit that relationship because they will see that the center for you is you. When I was in college, I was, uh, I was in, the, um, in the, the line at the cafeteria one time to get something to eat, and, and there was this cute little girl, and, uh, and, and she was laughing and carrying on, and, and I think it was, it was mashed potatoes, and you'd say, I'd like some mashed potatoes, and she'd take it and go, plot, and would splat all over the plate and laugh and hand you. And I thought, man, I like her. I like her. She's funny. She's cute. Started to get to know her a little bit. She's kind of adventurous. She wants to try things and do things. And so we started dating. And I'm, I remember, and I think I've shared this, but I remember asking her, what do you love to do? We talked about things that we love to do. And I was like, I love to go to the beach. She said, I love to go to the beach. I grew up a good part of my life in Florida and then along the East Coast. We both love to go to the beach. I said, it's like a match made in heaven. What do you love there? And she goes, I love to go for long walks. I was like, huh, really? I love to go to the beach because I like the waves. I like to catch waves. I like, I like everything that's involved in that. Everything else at the beach to me is a waste of time. And so she's like, I love just walking along the beach and talking. Two things that I think are somewhat sometimes a waste of time. And so I had to, because I know this, one other time I tried with someone to walk along the beach and all I kept going is, oh, that's a big, oh, I wish I was out there now. Look at the curl. I, oh, I could have caught that. I could have caught Right? And then I decided maybe what I want in this situation is not so important as what she wants. And I'm willing to yield. I'm willing to go for the dreaded walk on the beach. Now, whenever we go to the beach, I know it's coming and I've learned to enjoy it to a degree. But surrendering, surrendering some things for me, for the sake of our relationship, 
And just for her joy brings me great joy. I love it. I love it. But with Jesus, we're dealing with a totally higher order of being. To surrender to him will open a totally new, a magnitude of relationship. Leads to a deeper life, a greater life, an incredible life. I mean, what does he bring with it, that life? It's called eternal life. Not just life in the future, but eternal life right here, right now. Walking, talking, breathing on this earth, eternal life. Now, you can't treat a person like that as your assistant. You can't say, hey, Jesus, I'm busy. Could you make me a pot of coffee? How do you relate to him? How do you relate to him? We can't say, Lord, I don't need you all the time, not every day. But when I do need you, I want you right here, right away. In other words, don't call me, I'll call you. Is that a logical way to relate to the creator of the universe? On a totally higher magnitude of being? To use him? And what he says, like it's advice from somebody? To think, oh, so Jesus, you know, your word teaches about your plan for marriage and sex outside of marriage is wrong. Hmm. Thanks for your input, Jesus. I'll take it under advisement because I'm trying to be practical here. I've been very lonely and now I have this relationship and I don't want to lose it. It seems to me that following you in this instance is not practical, but thanks. Your opinion is important to me. Kind of like those online surveys you get. Your opinion is important to us. He's your savior. He's not your personal genie. He's not a God who hangs around and then comes when you ring for him. This is not our God. This is not the God that we see in the Bible. This is not the God who was the creator of the universe. This is not how it's done. This is not how it works. He wants it all, or we miss it. He does not just call us, though, to a life of obedience. He calls us to a life that includes joy, includes adventure. He says, come and see. It's like the Old Testament. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Just try it. It's good. For many people, you know, when you say, like I said, you say obedience, that's kind of a scary thing. What if he asked me to do something I don't want to do? Think about that. Of course he's going to ask you to do something you don't want to do. It's ridiculous to think otherwise. It's, it's, it's like an athlete with a coach, right? I mean, imagine, you know, we're, we're in football season. We're coming up on the national championship. Imagine, imagine that you're, some, you're a really good athlete and, and, and uh, Nick Saban from the University of Alabama shows up on your doorstep and says, I'd like you to come play for Alabama. What do you say? Would you say something like this? I really want to come to Alabama. I want to win championships. But I don't like wind sprints that much. I don't like running in general. I don't want to do spring practices. I don't want to do weightlifting. Ugh, so sweaty. It's gross. I don't like being uncomfortable. Also, I don't like being yelled at. It hurts my feelings. It makes me feel unmotivated. What do you think Nick Saban would say to that? Do you want to be great? You want to play for Alabama? You want to win championships? Of course I'm going to be hard on you. Of course I'm going to make you run. It's going to be hard at times. There is a price for greatness. 
but it will be an adventure and it will be worth it in the long run. Actually, Nick Saban probably wouldn't say that. He'd say something much more colorful and storm out of your house. But we're just, just pretending, right? Because if there's going to be greatness in anything, it requires submission to something. For an athlete, you know, the Olympics are coming up this summer and people are training every day, working as hard as they can. For musicians, for artists, everything, greatness in anything requires submission to something. It always requires that. And Jesus is saying, I have for you a great life. Now, we have to be careful in how we measure greatness, what we think greatness is. But he says, that's what I have for you. I have a life of greatness for you. But it requires submission to something to be able to achieve it. He says, obey my truth, submit to it, and my truth will set you free. We can't pick and choose what we think the truth is. We can't mend it or mold it or bend it to try to make it more palatable to ourselves or to our culture. We just have to say, what's the truth? And go with it. We are the people of the truth. We can accept nothing else. And our problem is sometimes we're like a fish who's jumped out of the water to find freedom and realizes suddenly that freedom is achieved in the confines of water. But it's not simply Jesus telling us, submit, obey. It's, it's a two-way street. Jesus is saying, give me everything you are, and I will give you everything I am. I will give to you much more than you give to me. And our problem sometimes is, we will, I'll follow you, Jesus, except for that. Some of my ideas are non-negotiable. No. We need to run to Jesus. We need to give him all. He says his yoke is easy and it will not crush us. And so for all of us, for myself included, I have my flaws. I see my, my shortcomings. I know where I fall short. Today, Jesus is calling us. He's calling me. He's saying, will you surrender? Give yourself to me. Give me your life. Give me your life and I will give you life eternal. Again, I mentioned this last week. You may be wrestling with some of these things. You may be wrestling with some of the, maybe some of the things in the Bible that you struggle with. You don't understand. You can't figure out why it says. If you have questions, ask. We would love to work with you on that. If you'd like resources, ask. We will help you with that. That's what this is all about, is working together so that we can follow Jesus more closely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we look at your word. And in many ways, we see ourselves. We can be people who are cynical, skeptical, even prejudiced like Nathaniel. We can be people who are headstrong and self-willed like Peter. And you call us. You call us. You don't care. You take us anyways. And God, we thank you for that, the joy that is in that, of being chosen of being accepted, accepted by the Holy One. And Lord, help us then as we take that in, as we, um, as we take this truth and we allow it to work its way into our, into our lives, we change. 
we become more like you. Help us, Lord, to be faithful followers and to find the life and the meaning and the purpose that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, and during this difficult time, um, just letting you know, we're talking and meeting and thinking about when uh, the church maybe in a, at a smaller, in a smaller amount can start getting back together. Uh, we, will, uh, we will post that as soon as we make a decision on, on when that will happen to, to give you a little bit of warning. And um, we just appreciate that you're here with us. We appreciate that you're following along um, and, and, and being a part of us even when we're apart. Thank you, and God bless you, and you are dismissed.